So I'll just say I was a little surprised when I pulled up. Um, there were three cars when I got here. And I thought, man, uh, you talk about your reputation preceding you. And so uh, when I got here, they said that the power had been out and they had canceled services. But then you guys have just started coming in. So you guys are the crowd that lives close to the building or the ones that would have been here either way or the ones who are not in the loop to get the messages as uh, some folks uh, are, I know, at LJ. But uh, we're glad that you're here. If you're in person, if you're streaming, we're glad you're here. Um, it is interesting. Uh, we have... Our technology has come a long way, especially since COVID. Now um, we can stream everything as we, as we do. I know you guys do here, we do at LJ as well. And so there's somebody right now sitting by their pool or sitting there grilling on their Blackstone and they're joining us in that way. And so however you are joining us, uh, we really, really appreciate it. Go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles if you have them. Turn to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. It's been a, been a crazy time, crazy summer I know already. Um, I, uh, I pulled up the weather app on my phone. It was 276 degrees today in Buford. Um, it was hot. Uh, up in LJ, we were about five degrees cooler, but it was still warm up there, and so summer is uh, fully underway. I know Sunday was Father's Day. I hope that all you dads got special attention. Uh, I shared with the folks at LJ on Sunday that uh, Father's Day is actually the 20th most celebrated holiday in the United States. Number one is Christmas, and number two is Mother's Day. Uh, so it's Jesus and your mom are, are the two most celebrated, and then somewhere down the line is Father's Day. But I know my family treated me special, and I hope yours did uh, as well. We have an interesting task before us tonight, and that is to deal with uh, the name of Jesus. And before we get into our specific title. I want to share with you what I'm sure has been a theme verse for you so far this summer. It's Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus is one that should be uttered with reverence and respect and awe, and his name, because of what he has done for us and his obedience to the Father, is the name above all names. I taught a class for the Georgia School of Preaching last quarter um, on the Godhead. And we spent a lot of time looking at all the names for Jesus. And they're, they're pretty remarkable. If you go and look at the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, there, there's this, these seven, uh, what I call them, qualifications of Jesus that, that just talk about how amazing he is and how he's higher than the angels. Go over to the book of Colossians where it talks about the son having the supremacy and how without him nothing that was made was made. And, and we are reminded once again that from the beginning of Genesis until the end of Revelation that God's word is the story of the son of God coming to redeem us so that we could become the children of God. And so we try to know him better. We try to find 
ways to understand him and see who he is and find his place in our lives. And that brings us, I believe, to our specific area of discussion tonight. Jesus, the cornerstone. Jesus, the cornerstone. You go ahead and uh, turn your Bibles over just a book to Ephesians, the second chapter. The Bible is uh, full of illustrations, at least a dozen of them, where it refers to the cornerstone. But uh, for, for the focus of our lesson tonight, to kind of narrow it down, we're going to spend most of our time here in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. And uh, our specific text will be verses 19 through 22. Verses 19 through 22. I'm reading from the NIV. You can follow however you want. You may notice there in verse 19, though, uh, what's the first word in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19? Now, and then it, some of your versions say, therefore. So if the word is therefore, I always joke with our folks at LJ about this. You have to go back and see what it's there for, right? Uh, the NIV chose the word consequently there. So we know that whatever was said before is important contextually to what we're going to say here. So we're going to jump back just a little bit to the beginning of this chapter and, and just sort of summarize it a little bit. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He says you were lost, right? But we jump down to verse 8 one of our proof texts about salvation. For it is by grace you have been saved. Some of the religious world accuses us of not believing that verse, but I want you to know that the Lord's church wholeheartedly knows, believes, teaches, and understands that we are saved by the outpouring and undeserved grace of God. And we live in it, and we revel in it, and, and we are so thankful for God's grace poured down upon us. We are saved by His grace, and everything other than that is secondary. We are saved by grace, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not just a, not just a simple belief, but, but a belief that leads to action and spurs us on in that way. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by work, so that no one can boast. In no way, shape, form, or fashion will we be able to stand before God and say, God, I, I attended 5,632 worship services in my life, and I, I gave 12% of my income every week, and I led this many songs and taught this many classes, and look how wonderful I am. Let me on into heaven. No, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. But once we become a Christian... Once we respond to that grace, once we have that faith, once we repent of our sins and those sins are, are washed away and cleansed off of us in baptism, we are reminded that we are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship. That word in the Greek is fascinating. And, and some people have even taken it to say we are God's masterpiece. You know, it's much more complicated than that. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Some of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture contained there in this second chapter of Ephesians. Therefore, so because of those things, verse 11, he says, I want you to remember something. There are five things here that he wants us to remember. 
Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth. Um, this is interesting. So uh, LJ, where I live, is a very small town. And um, ethnically and racially, it is very homogenous. Um, you are either there um, white, Caucasian, or Guatemalan. Um, and, 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 that, and that's about it. That, that makes up 99.8% of the population. And so I asked this question on Sunday, and there were no hands, but I asked this question. Is anybody that's ethnically Jewish here in the crowd tonight? Maybe if you had your normal crowd here, there might be. But for most people that live in the great state of Georgia, uh, we're not ethnically Jewish. So this description here is all of us. When he says here, you who were Gentiles by birth, that means everybody who's not Jewish by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember, Gentiles, all of us, that at that time you were, number one, separate from Christ. There's no relationship there. Excluded from citizenship. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. Foreigners from the covenant. That covenant that started with, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and moved on down the line. We were excluded. We were foreigners to that covenant. Foreigners to the covenant of the promise, the NIV says, without hope and without God in the world. A very lost, lonely, desperate, sad state that we were in. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The fifth chapter of Romans says that, that, when, we were, uh, that when we were lost in our trespasses and sins, that, that Christ came and died for the ungodly. That text in some versions says that we were powerless. We were all these things, but it was the blood of Jesus, the demonstrated love of God that brought us near. And he says, for he himself, verse 14, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And so it's all this background that's going to lead us to our, to our text here, right? We were, we were all these things. We were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenant, without hope, without God in the world. But consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. These two words in the text um, are words that would have been um, would have been very polarizing for the for the contemporary audience. Uh, a foreigner, the Greek word that's used there, is somebody um, who did not belong, uh, an an alien resident, if you will. Um, I'll give you an example of, of, of what this might feel like. Um, <clears throat> my uh, wife is Puerto Rican. And, uh, and I used to, uh, when we started dating, go over to her house and feel very, very, very uncomfortable because I knew one word of Spanish. You want to know what that word was? Hola, right? That's just the only one. So uh, I would go over there, and they'd be talking, and I'd nod my head. And so 
very quietly, I started taking, I was an undergraduate student at that time, started taking Spanish classes. And by the middle of Spanish too, I started to figure out a little bit of what they were saying about me. And most of it was nice, but you know, some of it wasn't. But so, so I, I began to, but you feel very, very lonely when people are speaking a language around you that you don't understand. Or, or culturally, um, where, uh, where I preached in my first preaching job, was uh, just a little bit south of here, Phoenix City, Alabama, right on the Alabama-Georgia line with Columbus, Georgia, and we had uh, Fort Benning there. And so a lot of our members there at Phoenix City were either active duty or retired uh, army. And we had people from all different cultures that were part of that congregation. And and one of uh, our members was uh, part of uh, an ethnic group that was from uh, the Philippines. And so they invited uh, my wife and I, who were newlyweds at the time, to a birthday party for, uh, for his daughter. And, uh, and we got there, and there was music and people dancing around in the backyard. And I went to the food, and I was like, all right, where's the hamburgers and hot dogs? And it was all food that I'd never seen before, and it was a little uncomfortable to be in that situation. But luckily, we got past those things and ended up having a great time. But but foreigners, we, we, we feel out of, out of place, and that's kind of what he's saying here. The second one, strangers, is worse than that. This would have been a person, according to the Greek word that's used here, who actually had to, had to pay a tax to be able to live among those people uh, who they wanted to stay with. Th- these, were, these were foreigners who were not welcome and unwanted. He says, you're not any of those things anymore. All those feelings of, of being uncomfortable and feeling out of place and paying a, a tax to live. You're none of those things. But now we're fellow citizens with God's people. And this second part is important. And members of his household. Members of his household. I have some very good friends that today had a big day. I, th- I thought it was so funny that we were talking about this text. They, for the last year, have been fostering twins, baby boy and a, and a baby girl. And today was adoption day. So their beautiful smiling faces when they were there, and those children officially became part of their family. When you're fostering a child, and some of you may have been involved in this, you, when you post a picture on social media, you have to blur or put something over the child's face because legally you're not allowed to to show their face on social media. Today all those pictures are gone and we can see them officially as part of the family. Jesus, the cornerstone, has made that possible in our lives. We have been adopted into the household of God. We are children of God. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but we're children of God. Verse 20, let's get to this title. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So members of, of the household, the household there is built on the, on the foundation of the apostles and, and prophets. There's been a lot of discussion about what that means exactly. Um, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, is it... Uh, is it them? Are, are the apostles the foundation of the church or, or the prophets? Whether he means prophets in the New Testament or the prophets of old who endured so much for God. 
personally, I don't think it's either one, either one of those things. I think when he says here that the foundation of God's household is the apostles and the prophets, I believe wholeheartedly he's talking about their teaching. Specifically in this context, that teaching, that, that salvation had been revealed to the Gentiles. So he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. With Christ Jesus himself as the, as the chief cornerstone. So, so what does this mean, the chief cornerstone? Um, this word is actually only used twice here and in 1 Peter. This, this word in the text, chief cornerstone. Well, um, some of you will know more about this than what I'm about to say, and so... Uh, you, can, you can tell me I'm wrong when we're over, but a cornerstone now uh, doesn't mean anything as it relates to construction. Um, now, if there's a, a cornerstone, if you go up to a building and you see a cornerstone, it'll usually have some sort of uh, inscription or some sort of dedication. Uh, it is very much now uh, a ceremonial thing. But in ancient times, you had cornerstones that were responsible for uh, building a building. And the first stone that was laid in the construction process was the chief cornerstone. And the chief cornerstone was so important because if it wasn't completely level, if it wasn't in the exact right spot, it would completely ruin the rest of the construction process. It was paramount to the structural integrity of, of a building, if that chief cornerstone was what was important there. The average uh, cornerstone that would have started a building process would have been about four yards in different, different times and different points. But actually, very interestingly, the chief cornerstone of the temple uh, is said to have been about 12 yards long. Now, I don't know um, if, you are a, if you're a, a football fan, but <clears throat> if you go and watch football on Saturday, to get a first down is 10 yards. And I'm an Auburn fan. Sometimes that 10 yards can seem like a really, really, really long distance, right? Um, but, but imagine 10 yards plus two more yards. That would have been the size of the stone that was laid to, to set the foundation. This, this piece here is so important because had it not been laid correctly, the building would not have stood. And so Jesus here is described in the house of God as the, as the chief cornerstone. And in our discussion, we're going to think about this in three different ways. Jesus was the chief cornerstone of the house of God as it related to the temple. Of course, metaphorically here, Jesus is referred to as that chief cornerstone. Secondly, here specifically in this text, Jesus is referred to as the chief cornerstone of the house of God, which is the church. And thirdly, as we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about in just a minute, Jesus is the chief cornerstone of our lives. Our lives, us, as God's temple, Jesus has to be the chief cornerstone. In verse 21, in him... In Jesus, the, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a, 
holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. There's a a lot to take in and to, to think about right there. So as we do that, um, we're going to think about this in terms of four questions. In terms of four questions. Number one, is Jesus the, the chief cornerstone of my life? I want, I want us to think about that. I want us to think about that. So, so going back to this idea of a, of a cornerstone, you can t- turn your Bibles over to 1 Peter. That's where we're going to be in just a minute. 1 Peter chapter 2. I wanted to keep this casual for us tonight to help us sort of get a grasp of, of what, we're, what we're saying here. Is Jesus the chief cornerstone of my life? Let's put it this way. Is Jesus the foundation of everything that I do? Let me put it this way. If I was to lose everything I have in this life, if I was to lose all my money, if I was to lose my job, if I was to lose my home, if I was to lose my, my family, if I was to lose my, my friends, what would be left? What would be left? For a lot of us, I don't think we know. I don't think we know. What would be left if we, if we hit that proverbial rock bottom? If my life is assembled the way it's supposed to be, if I've built it in the correct way, then Jesus would be what was left if everything else was stripped away. And so, so I want you to think about that. Foundationally, it is Jesus the rock that supports everything else that I do? Is Jesus where I find my identity? Is Jesus where I find my safety? Is Jesus where I find that that solid foundation in which I can stand? I I thought about this. I asked some people about this last week just to to sort of describe themselves and who they were and and what they are. And I thought about it in my life. I'm a lot of things. This, this past Sunday, as I mentioned, was Father's Day, and besides being a Christian, the, the, the thing that I'm the most proud of being is a dad. I have, I have two little girls at home, a three-year-old who soon, will soon be four, and a, a two-year-old. By the way, young people, young people, don't have your kids that close together. That was a mistake. It's, I haven't slept in almost four years, but that is the thing that I'm most proud of that most defines me. I have a hat that I wear almost everywhere I go and it just says, girl dad. 17-year-old me would have never been caught dead wearing that hat. You know, uh, it would have been, um, you know, something else really stupid, I'm sure, that it would have said. But that, that's the thing that, that I'm the most proud of and, and, and I love that. Carrying around that diaper bag and wearing that girl dad hat and and cargo shorts and New Balances, like that's, that's the thing that makes me happy, right? But that can't be who I am. I love my wife more than anything in the world. The fact that she married me is still one of 
those unsolved mysteries that we used to see on TV. But being a husband can't be the thing that defines my life. I love being a preacher. Uh, man, it's great. Uh, it's one of, my, one of my favorite things. All the, the preachers that I looked up to growing up, and now some of them I get to work with, and I get to come places like here on summer series and go do revivals, and we get to go to all these things and hang out with other preachers. And, you know, I love being that. But that can't be what defines me. My foundation has to be that I am a Christian, that I am a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And in my life, if I ever get that out of balance, then, then I'm completely missing the point of what the Bible is saying. Jesus has to be the chief cornerstone. First uh, Peter chapter 2, if you're there. Starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, the living Stone. He's not a physical stone because stones can't be alive. The living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to quote Isaiah two different times, and he quotes Psalm 118 in those texts that follows. But look at what he says in verse 9. Look at what he says. You are, there, there are four descriptors here that are mind-blowing. If you're putting together sermons, this is one of the most powerful four-point sermons you could ever put together from the text. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Everything boils down to whether or not Jesus is that rock-solid foundation in my life. The second part of that. What am I doing to build on that as, as part of a collective? What I mean is this, if Jesus is the chief cornerstone of his church, which he has to be, right? The Bible is clear that Christ is the head of the church, that it is his church. He is the chief cornerstone. He is what holds it all in balance. He is what maintains the integrity, everything that we do. I saw that uh, last Sunday you, you guys were talking about elders and what that means. And elders are wonderful, but if you have elders that don't rely on Jesus to be the chief cornerstone, the church will still crumble. Jesus is the foundation. It's not those older members. It's not that person that contributes a lot of money. It's not those families that have been going to the church since 1927 and my granddaddy and great None of that is what matters. That's all wonderful. It's all well and good. But what am I doing to build on the cornerstone? What am I doing to build on the cornerstone? I've been asked a lot of times, how, how do churches grow? Uh, 
one of the things that I'm, that I'm very proud of in my preaching career, when I started um, preaching, when I was, let me go back and do the math, 23 years old, we started at a little church, and we had 17 people. And the first Sunday that I was there, we had 17 for Bible study, 17 for morning worship, and 17 for evening worship. And I was really proud of that, because that's a, that's a remarkable thing. And we grew by the time that I ended up moving to LJ to where we were averaging well over 100, sometimes 110, 120 on Sundays. And I've been asked, oh, how did you do that? And there are different techniques, and it's different based on where you are, and it's different based on where the church is and what, what the ethnicity is and uh, where the church is. Our church was a military church, so we had to embrace certain things there. There, there are all these different factors, but it all boils down to one simple thing. Is it or is it not built on Jesus? Because if you're teaching the truths found in God's word, and everything is about giving God the glory through his son, then that's how the church will grow. But what happens sometimes is that we, as, as churches, get caught up in things that don't reflect that. They don't reflect that. I've been asked this, this question, too. How do you avoid conflict in the church? Every one of us has been a part of some church conflict. And here's my answer to that question. Swallow your pride. Swallow your pride. I want you to, to think about this with me. Not just in the church setting, but in your life. Every argument, every fight, every disagreement you've ever been in, Really think about the root cause, and I will guarantee you the root cause of that is pride and selfishness. Some on the part of the other person, and let's be honest with ourselves, some on our part. Someone comes to us, and they've, they've done something wrong, and we're the innocent party, and we've been offended, and they've done that, and they come, and they apologize to us. How it make you mad? You're, you're right in a situation and the other person has done you wrong and you can stand there and you can have the moral high ground and then they come back and as humbly as they can they apologize to you and then you have to stink and forgive them. Doesn't that just make you mad sometimes? It does me. But we swallow our pride and, and we forgive. The way we avoid conflict, the way we contribute and help build on the chief cornerstone as part of the collective, as part of the church is that everything is about others. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, two important sentences. Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Um, let's chase a rabbit for a second if we can. Turn over to 1 Peter 5, just a couple chapters over. I know your preachers never do this, but we'll, we'll chase a rabbit for a second. I, uh, I had to put together a lesson recently about, um, about humility. And, uh, and I was studying this passage here in 1 Peter 5. And I came across this in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. In, in, as an introduction, he's been talking about here uh, about elders and how they ought to act and behave. And he says in the same way, 1 Peter 5, 5, you who are younger, uh, submit yourselves to your elders. 
So whether you want to or not, you have to listen to the elders. That's just what the Bible says, right? But he says, all of you. So this is elders, young people, middle-aged people, everybody, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, uh, I was looking at the, at the Greek text here, just, you know, try to look at some of the words. And, I, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a Greek scholar like some people, but I like to go back and look and see what these words mean and, and, what, the, and where the, what they are and why they were used. And this word is only used here this one time in the text. And now whenever that's the case, that's interesting. That's fascinating, right? So you got to follow that up. And so this word, clothe yourself, it, it is really a putting together of two different Greek words. And it came to mean a, a garment. Clothe yourself, right? It, it's, a, it's a garment. And this garment was um, something that would have been worn by slaves. It would have been something like um, if you go into a laboratory and you put this, you know, gown on over your clothes, um, or if you've ever been in a, in a hospital setting, you've had to put something on over your clothes. But it would have been these sleeves that went over and, and tied in the back. And it would have been indicative of a, of a slave's garment. And what I found interesting was this. It would have probably been the same type of garment that Jesus put on in John chapter 17 when he washed the disciples' feet. And as everybody was sitting there and they're already in the meal and they're looking around and the foot washing should have already taken place and they're trying to figure out who's going to wash these feet. Jesus would have gone and put this garment on. You talk about an actual visual representation of clothing yourself with humility. Jesus puts this garment on and washes the feet of everybody there. Humbling ourselves. We open by looking at Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. If we want to build on the collective, it's all about putting the others first and building on that foundation. Thirdly, what am I doing to build on that individually? 1 Corinthians 6. Turn over there really quickly. 1 Corinthians 6. Where does God live? Where does God live? It's a question that sometimes asked. We could go back and look at the, uh, at the tabernacle and the temple, and there was a physical dwelling place of God. But now, of course, because of the fact that that, that system has been destroyed and we have, now have a new covenant with God through Jesus, God doesn't dwell in a, in a physical place anymore. He dwells in his new holy temple, which I believe is twofold. And I believe that 1 Corinthians Three teaches us, and I think everybody here would agree with that, that, that the church is the temple and that God dwells in his church. But secondly, the Bible teaches very clearly that God has made us a temple and then he dwells through his spirit in us. Look at what it says here, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your own bodies. That, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the temple, what am I doing to build on that cornerstone in my life? What are our Bible study habits like? I'll let you in on a little secret. 
Uh, people think that uh, preachers, because it's our job to get lessons ready, have the best Bible study habits of anybody in the world. I want to tell you from personal experience and being a preacher and knowing a lot of preachers, that is not true. Sometimes preachers struggle the most of having that discipline to have personal Bible studies. Yeah, we're getting lessons ready and we're doing devos and teaching classes, but that personal study that enriches your own soul, sometimes we lack that. What are our Bible study habits like? What's our prayer life like? What's our prayer life like? One of the things that, that always tickles me at church, my three-year-old, after every prayer, very loudly says, Amen. We, we pray at home. And, and, and she takes that, and she knows when she hears in Jesus' name, you say amen. What, are, what is our personal prayer life like? What's our life like in secret when nobody else sees us? What am I doing to build on that individually as the temple of God? What am I doing to be led by the Spirit? Then the final question here. Final question. So, I told you here that the cornerstone, this word that's used in 1 Peter and is used here in Ephesians, is the big rock that sits on the bottom of a building and every stone is laid uh, to be in line with that so that builds up this temple. Well, turns out that might not be the case. Turns out that might not be exactly what the author intended here. That is what that word means, but it did come to mean something else. And it probably would have meant something else, especially to the Ephesians. So you all know that these Letters that were written to churches were written to a specific group of people living in a certain place. And in Ephesus, there was a very well-known temple. It was the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana. And it uh, was one of the ancient wonders of the world. One of the things that made it so special was not the cornerstone that it was built upon, but the capstone that was on the top of it. That's what made it so, uh, so prestigious, what made it have its recognition in the world. So when, when I say here, and I, and I think about this word as Jesus is the cornerstone, I want us to think about it in both of these different ways. That yes, Jesus has to be the foundation, but Jesus has to be and he will be the capstone, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, if you will. So I ask us this final question as we get ready to wrap up. Jesus should be the cornerstone, but will he be the capstone? At the end of my life, when I leave this world, or if I hear the sound of that trumpet while I'm still living, Will Jesus be the capstone of my life? Will the capstone of my life be John 14? I, I go to prepare a place and, and, and this, this mansion that exists with all these rooms and we're going to go and walk those proverbial streets of gold and, and, and we will celebrate and we will praise God forever and ever and that will be the capstone because Jesus was the cornerstone. Sing to me of heaven, let me fondly dream as we sing about
Or will the capstone of my life be sadness and terror and loneliness? We started this lesson, will the capstone of my life be separation from Christ? Will it be exclusion from citizenship? Philippians chapter 2 says our citizenship is in heaven, it's the children of God, but Will we once again be foreigners to the covenant of promise? Will we once again be without hope? Will we once again be without God? Or will Jesus be the capstone of my life? These are four questions that take a lot of thought and a lot of consideration for us to to answer, but they're four important questions to think about. Jesus, the chief cornerstone of my life right now, Is he what my foundation is built upon? Is he what would be left if everything else were stripped away? What am I doing to build on that cornerstone, which is the church? What am I doing to build on that cornerstone in my own life as I'm called the temple of God? And when this life is over, what will be the capstone of my life? I want to look at one passage and then we're going to be done. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is a a great chapter. And here in our context, Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 8 of Acts chapter 4. He said to them, rulers and elders of the people... If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, they had healed this man and they were being punished for it. Shown to a man that was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. In the Gospels, Jesus tells a a parable about a vineyard and uses this same quotation. We knew all the way back in Psalm 118 that Jesus was going to be the cornerstone and that the world would reject him. There's a very well-known story about settlers who went west across the Oregon Trail. They went and they came to a stream before they could get all the way where they were intending to go. And this was a stream that they could cross, but it's one that they couldn't cross in, in two steps or in one step. And so in the middle of that, there was a little lump sticking out. And so this entire group of travelers did the two-step across this stream. They hit that rock in the middle and got to the other side. It was one of those things that was written about in journals and in logs that were discovered many years later. Well, some years later, um, this particular stream that was just east of the Rocky Mountains was settled itself. Uh, A family came and they built a, a cabin right alongside this stream. That stream was their water source and what sort of kept them going. And the man had a a door that wouldn't quite stay shut. 
And so one day he was looking around and he looked out in the middle of that stream and there was that lump sticking up. So he took it out of the water and he took it and put it right there by his front door. And for two generations, that cabin had as originally a door stop, but eventually as a stepping stone, this same rock. Well, the man who owned that cabin had a, a family, then he had grandchildren. And one of his grandsons went off to a big university to study geology. Now, why a man would want to go to college to study rocks is beyond me. I hope there's no geologists here, but... Um, he, uh, he came back and visited his grandfather's cabin, and he started looking at that rock. And he took it and got his equipment out, and he, and he cleaned it up, and his eyes got really big. Turned out that rock was pure, solid gold. As a matter of fact, it's the largest single piece of gold ever discovered east of the Rocky Mountains. That stone that people stepped across to get to what they thought was something better this stone that was for two generations a doorstop or a welcome mat turned out to be the most valuable piece of gold ever discovered east of the Rockies. Sometimes that stone which is rejected is the most valuable thing we could ever know. And here Peter says, the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus, as we started out this discussion, is the name above all names. He is the chief cornerstone that was rejected when he lived in the flesh and who sadly is rejected by the majority of the world today. But you and I have an opportunity to correct that in our lives, to make him the chief cornerstone in everything that we do and everything that we build. So the question is here for us. Will we reject him? Or will we praise him? Will we accept him? Will we build on him in our lives? The invitation is going to be open in just a second. And if you're here and you're a Christian and you have not made Jesus the cornerstone of your life, you have an opportunity to make that right tonight. If you're at home and you're watching when we sing this song, bow your head, repent, and pray to God. If you're here tonight and you want to do something publicly, we'd love to help you in that. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, We'd love to help you with that. Not just to tell the story that you were baptized the night that the lights went out in Georgia, but to know that you accepted Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and made him the foundation of your life. If you haven't done that and you're ready to do that tonight, we hope that you will. If you need to respond, come as we stand and sing. Oh,